Welcome to the Ken Robinson Podcast. Get ready for conversation and information from the people who are making a difference. Hosted by veteran Hall of Fame radio and television journalist, Ken Robinson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for calling up my podcast and welcome to all our listeners in the United States and around the world. On this show, we're going to examine church rituals. Why do believers do what they do? We'll look at college reform. Should universities teach their students about character and ethics? Robocalls. How can we get rid of those annoying telemarketers? But first, UFOs. The numbers are in and sightings are up, way up. Let's bring in ABC News correspondent Ryan Burrow, who's on the line from Chicago. Ryan, there's been a big increase in a number of people who are reporting unidentified flying objects. Yeah, the National UFO Reporting Center collects all this data throughout the year of reports of unidentified flying objects all across the country. And uh, what they found from their 2019 numbers was nearly 6,000 sightings, uh, more specifically 5,971. That's up from 3,000. 395 in 2018, so up over 75%. Now, there's no rhyme or reason for this. The guy who's in charge of all this, Peter Davenport, tells ABC News he doesn't track uh, much beyond just the data itself. Many of the people who call in these reports may have witnessed the same thing, so you may have you know, 15, 20 reports on the same object in the sky. Um, but he does find it interesting that uh, there has been a spike in these kind of calls uh, over the last year. Are they seeing more UFO sightings in any one particular part of the country than, than another? Yeah, you know, right now, from the numbers that he's looking at, California led the way uh, last year with the most number of UFO observations, uh, 485 in total. I mean, it is kind of the perfect storm. You've got a huge population. You've also got desert desert territory. You've got a lot of people coming in and going out, a lot of flight activity. Uh, Florida came in second with 385. Uh, Washington State uh, came in third with 222 reports. You know, you would think, uh, I pulled the office here to see what uh, everyone here thought was going to be the highest state. Most of them were saying New Mexico or Arizona. That's not the case. Uh, you know, it's, it's Florida. It's uh, California. It's some of these uh, more populated states. Now, looking over the list, I see a, a lot of sightings in Ohio uh, here, and uh, even some here in the in the greater Cleveland area. So uh, it, it looks like uh, these are kind of spread out far and wide. Here's the thing. Um, you know, there are a lot more objects in the sky now. I can tell you, alone, SpaceX launched 180 new satellites into space. Those devices have lit up the night sky. Uh, they may be UFOs to people who don't understand what's going on, uh, not to mention the fact that a lot of people have drones. I mean, my son got a drone for Christmas. So, you know, I mean, a lot of those things might be whipping around the sky, too, that uh, people aren't aware of. So it could be a lot of factors. Um, we haven't heard anything from the military as far as any panic or disturbance or anything like that. Not that we would necessarily from the military, but um, it doesn't seem as though uh, it's been a threat or a concern to government officials. We do know in Colorado and Nebraska uh, they've been concerned about uh, 
spotting of numerous drones. They continue to investigate, but really haven't come up with anything that uh, is substantial as to why all of those sightings would have happened. They're concerned, obviously, about any kind of criminal activity or something in the airspace that's not supposed to be in the airspace. But uh, they've got a task force that's looking into it. They use some high-tech equipment this week to scan back and forth, and they haven't found anything yet. So uh, that mystery uh, remains as well. And I understand a, a lot of those drones that they've been seeing in the western part of the country have been flying in formation, which is kind of kind of unusual. Yeah, so is it someone who's testing these out? I mean, we know that uh, people have gotten very creative with these drones, turning them essentially into artwork. Uh, is there a place where they're all going or, uh, you know, even... Uh, you know, criminally, uh, you know, is this an opportunity for for drug dealers to kind of move product back and forth? That's another concern as well. So it's something they're looking into, but don't really have any concrete evidence on. Um, There are obviously a lot of restrictions, and it's becoming even more restrictive to fly drones, especially around airspace where planes are taking off over large crowds. Uh, They don't even like it, uh, you know, over bodies of water or public transportation. So, um, you know, we're going to hear more and more about it, especially as companies like even FedEx and UPS start testing out drone use, uh, Amazon as well, drone use uh, for delivery. Now, as far as the UFOs goes, uh, these reports, what are people reported, uh, what are they saying they saw? Is it the traditional flying saucer kind of thing, or is it something different? Some of them are are that, uh, orbs, uh, flashes of light, uh, objects trailing other objects are some of the things that are called it. You know, part of this may also be the fact that we've all got cell phones and the, the service is getting much better. You know, if you're out and about and you see something in the sky, uh, you're more likely to report it there and then if you've got a cell phone in hand and it's functioning. If you're out in the desert and, you know, there's, there's no, uh, you know, service, uh, that could be a problem. Maybe it's because cell phone service has gotten better. People are able to whip out their phones and place those calls sooner, and that's why you're able to accumulate so many at one given time. Any thoughts as to this being possibly natural phenomena? You know, maybe something, even something maybe related to uh, the changing climate or something. It's it's possible. Uh, you know, the thing about UFOs is they're unidentified flying objects, and you know there there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for any of this. Uh, people also interpret different things uh, different ways, so that could be part of it as well. Uh, it's always a mystery, and that's what makes it fun to talk about. Absolutely, and people are still. I'm, I'm seeing stories about people talking about aliens again. Are there aliens among us? You know, do they look like us? Are they embedded in our society? That kind of thing. And I guess that would kind of put people on edge and make them look up at the sky every once in a while. Well, well, and that's obviously true, right? I mean, the aliens have been lurking among us for years, so <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to see if uh, anyone's able to sniff them out. But um, you know, it's. We also see patterns like this, uh, you know, take place when people uh, maybe see something on television. Maybe they want to believe something. Maybe there's a society. Maybe there's a video game that's encouraging people to think this way. Uh, You know, popular culture can also have an impact on the way people see things as well. Well, what do you say to the folks who, you know, you know, like like all of us who who maybe step outside every once in a while, we look up at the stars. You know, there's a lot of space stuff going on that you know we're interested in. You know, maybe going back to the moon and exploring Mars, and we want to be more familiar with the the outdoor sky. But we look up and we see something off into the distance. It could be a helicopter, or it could be 
you know, it could spark the imagination. Uh, you know, what is that thing out there, that bright light that I see that I didn't see, you know, last time? The answers are in the stars, my friends. But I have to tell you, you know, I speaking of the drone that my son got for Christmas, uh, we actually took it out to a big open field. We were going to test it out. And uh, the thing started, and it went up in the air, and it never came back down. It went straight up into the air. I kid you not, we lost it on day one, and it went somewhere. So uh, who knows, maybe a bunch of these calls just so happen to be my son's drone that has yet to come back. By the way, uh, he is very disappointed, so we may have to get another one in the future. Oh, my goodness. That's, uh, that, yeah, that is a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know they could. I didn't know you could lose them like that. I, well, I didn't either. It was my first time <laughs> flying one, and uh, unfortunately, after 20 seconds, we lost a visual of it, and it just kept going up and up and up. So goodbye. Uh, maybe another time. <laughs> maybe somebody spotted it and called it in. Yeah, and one of my neighbors had bought a drone for for himself a couple of years ago, and it was kind of you know, you know, kind of a, uh, weird seeing that thing flying over the neighborhood all the time, but. Well, I'm glad I didn't put my cell phone on it because I could have taken cell phone. They had a little latch on there where you could dangle your cell phone so you could take video while it was going. Otherwise, that thing would have been, who knows what state that would have ended up in. Absolutely. Well, one thing we know, the skies are getting kind of busy for whatever reason, I guess. That's true. Well, very good. Really appreciate uh, the interview. All right. No problem. You have a good one. Okay. You too. Take care. ABC News correspondent Ryan Burrow reporting on the 75% spike in UFO sightings between 2018 and 2019. People calling in about white lights, fireballs, disc-shaped objects, and other oddities. Robocalls are also on the rise. Details after this break. People often ask me, what audio editing software do I use to produce my podcasts? Well, the answer is easy. Audacity, the free and user-friendly audio editing software that puts professional quality tools at your fingertips. With Audacity, you can easily cut, copy, and paste audio clips, making editing a breeze. Need to remove background noise or enhance the clarity of your recordings? Audacity has you covered with its powerful noise reduction and equalization features. From reverb and echo to pitch correction and beyond, Audacity empowers you to unleash your creativity. Audacity is available for download at no cost, making it accessible to everyone, from podcasters and musicians to students and hobbyists. So why wait? Take control of your audio editing needs with Audacity today. Visit audacityteam.org to download your free copy and join the millions of satisfied users like me who trust Audacity for their audio editing needs. Welcome back. I'm Ken Robinson. Nationwide, robocalls have increased at an average of 14% since 2015, despite federal efforts to reduce annoying and unwanted calls. That's according to a study by Third Digital Coast, based in Chicago. It's often said that the state of Ohio usually mirrors what's going on in the rest of the country. And the findings indicate that Ohio was the 14th hardest-hit state in 2019. Matt Zajahowski is with Third Digital Coast and tells us what they discovered about robocalls. Matt? Um, yeah. 
So what we did is we analyzed data um, from the Federal Trade Commission's National um, Do Not Call Registry. Uh, and what we wanted to see is where robocalls were happening most across the U.S. Um, so we looked at two main things in the study. We looked at data um, from 2019 in which we found Ohio was the 14th hardest state in the country in 2019. Um, Ohio residents filed 214,000 robocall complaints um, with the National Do Not Call uh, Registry. Um, and we also looked at the data for the last five years as well, not to see who has been impacted in the last year, um, but who has been impacted most in the last um, five years. Um, so for Ohio, we found uh, basically a similar range that Ohio ranked 17th uh, for most robocalls since 2015, um, totaling over a million uh, robocalls since 2015. Um, and what we found uh, that Ohio saw just a slightly larger increase since 2015 in the amount of robocalls um, that have been increasing nationwide. Um, that number was 14% nationwide. Ohio was at 19%. So just a slightly bit um, over the national average, um, but kind of within line with what we're seeing across the country. Wow. What type of uh, robocalls is that were Ohioans hit with the most? Um, so what we looked at for Ohio, the top three um, were debt reduction calls, um, robocalls uh, that are about, like, medical and prescriptions that you would get uh, as a reminder to pick up from, like, your local um, uh, pharmacy. And then the third was imposters. Um, so those were the top three types of robocalls um, that Ohio has been hit with, and that's since 2015, um, so within the last five years. Any idea why Ohio is uh, 14th on the list? It looks like a lot of robocalls were directed our way. Any idea why? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just due to population density. Um, we didn't get specific reasons why from the FTC, um, but what we did see that it was trending um, high, high across the country. Uh, they found a yearly increase of 14% year over year. Um, and like I said before, Ohio is slightly higher um, but we didn't get into much of the why. I think a lot of it is just due to kind of where, you know, population density in the country. Well, what about uh, national? You have national statistics too, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. how uh, are we seeing a lot of uh, uh, a big increase in the robocalls nationally? Uh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, year over year, the uh, FCC or F FTC, sorry, said that they were seeing a uh, – average of 14% um, yearly. Um, they also found, I believe, that half of the total calls placed in 2019 um, were classified as spam. So it's definitely something that uh, is impacting a lot of people across the country. I know I get, it seems like, more than um, more robocalls than forever. And one thing I've noticed that a lot of robocalls do now is they actually kind of use numbers that show up as your local zip code. So it seems like, you know, someone in your community is calling you, but then when you answer it, it's actually a recording most of the time. So it's um, definitely a way that scammers have figured out to kind of, you know, instead of having it shown as an unknown number from somewhere that's not locally that you probably wouldn't answer, I think people are more likely to answer phone calls when they see it, you know, coming from a phone number within their community.
Well, that's the the most troubling uh, kind of call because you see it, and it looks like it's right in your neighborhood, or it may be a a phone number that's even similar to your phone number, yeah. maybe off by just a, maybe a digit or two. <clears throat> that's uh, got to be concerning, and uh, and I guess these guys have the technology to do that, huh? Yeah, it's it's very frustrating, and I've noticed that a lot. You know, even the first three numbers. Uh, after the area code is my phone number, I get calls from all the time. And after a while, you start to pick up on it. It's like, well, you know, these people with very similar calls are calling me all the time. It just seems, you know, very suspicious. Now, you mentioned spam calls. Are they different than the regular uh, robocalls where people are trying to sell you something or are people trying to hoodwink you <laughs> into doing something? Yeah, I think they're classified within the state, at least by uh, the FTC is classifying them as the same. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of, like, these automated phone calls. Um, you know, some of them are scammers trying to do it. Um, one of the things that the FCC recommended is not answering a phone call. Uh, if if you answer the phone call and the recording asks you to hit a button uh, to stop getting these calls, that you need to hang up and block the number because that's actually another way um, that scammers are using to identify targets by people that are actually answering the phone and hitting this button to opt out. Um, so it's something where you're thinking you're actually doing something good, but it's actually the opposite of it. Wow. And if you uh, say anything, I guess you run the risk of, uh, well, one, not only letting the letting these people know that there's a live person at the end of that call, but also mm-hmm. they could maybe record what you say and twist it into something, you know, where maybe you agreed to do something you didn't even know about. Yeah, you really need to watch what, you, what you're saying and being wary about giving, you know, personal information. If you get a call from a number you're not uh, aware of and, you know, maybe they're saying they're your bank um, or your credit card company, just be very wary of the personal information that that, you know, that you're giving out on these calls, because um, it's a big thing that scammers are using to try and you know get information for you, or like you said, get you on tape saying that you're going to do something. So you really have to be wary with what um, you say when people, these scammers and robocalls, are attempting to call you. Mm-hmm. So what what state is the the number one uh, state when it comes to uh, getting robocalls? Uh, in 2019, that was. Colorado, um, and then Arizona um, was second on that list. Wow. Any idea why? I, I would guess maybe Arizona because there's a, probably a lot of retirees there and older people uh, tend to answer, want to answer the phone. <laughs> yes. I think a big part of it is uh, senior location. Um, so something that we found um, in this study that we didn't talk about yet um, seniors aged 60 to 80 are the hardest hit when it comes to these scam and robocalls. Um, the FTC reported that people 60 and older lost a total of $298 million to scams and fraud um, last year alone. So that is a big segment of what's being targeted by these scammers. So I think, you know, when we see some of these big states, um, that are high on the list, a lot of them have high senior populations. So that's definitely um, a big target area for these scammers. So they're they're looking to target senior citizens. That is basically mm-hmm. what they're doing. You know, you think that uh, older people would be kind of savvy, you know, mm-hmm. having with this robocall situation that's been going on for who knows how long, you know, maybe a couple of decades. People mm-hmm. are still caught off guard. Yeah. 
Yeah, people are definitely still. I think uh, just some of this newer, you know, p- the scammers are always kind of changing up the type of uh, schemes and calls they're doing. So I think, uh, like I mentioned, the local numbers is a newer thing the last couple of years. Um, you know, people might think that that's someone they know, whether it be friends and families that are reaching out to them. Um, so it's something I feel like they're consistently trying different, you know, scams to kind of get around it. Um, because you, you would think that people would be aware of it, but like I said, as the stage shows, it is um, certainly on the rise. It's something that's rising every year. Um, one thing I wanted to correct really quick, I said Connecticut was the third most impacted state. It was actually Oregon. I haven't been answer it yet. Oregon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Gee, so uh, Colorado, Arizona, and Oregon. Hmm. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, you would think, yeah, these scams. I remember the the grandfather scam or the grandchild scam, where somebody would mm-hmm. call and pretend, and, you know, like they're a relative and try to get money out of them for some. That scam has been right. around for twenty years, but it looks like it's surfacing now so much so that uh, that uh, police agencies here in our you know in our area are constantly alerting people to be on guard that somebody may be calling from the police department saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. your relative's been arrested, send bail money, send gift cards, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any idea what people can do to to stay on guard, and how do you protect yourself against these crazy scams? Sure. Um, Well, the FCC recommends um, a handful of steps on their website. Um, The first thing that you can do is you can register your phone number on the national Do Not Call list. Uh, Now, that site is www.donotcall.gov. So that's the first and most important step that they recommend, is it puts your number on this national list to prevent you from being called. Number two, they said don't answer calls from unknown numbers. The best thing you can do is screen these calls. If you're suspicious that a call may be spam or if you you know picked up the phone and you're not comfortable with and you feel like you've been scammed, they recommend blocking the number as well as reaching out to your cell phone or phone service provider to let them know that you're suspicious of this uh, number that called you. That way they can both block it for you and potentially block it. Um, we mentioned this one before, but just being wary of local phone numbers um, is an increased way that scammers go after people. So if your caller ID shows a local number, don't necessarily mean it's a local number. Again, they recommend screen the phone calls. Um, you know, if it's an actual person, they're more likely to leave a message. And then also talk to your uh, phone company provider. A lot uh, of the major uh, phone providers now are actually provide free apps that you can download to block unwanted calls. I know AT&T, Spirit, or Sprint, sorry, and Verizon all have free apps that you can download um, that are supposed to be good at blocking these type of robocalls. So those are the main recommendations that they say to kind of avoid it. Just, you know, register your number, don't answer calls from people that you don't know, and if you do suspect it, um, report it to your uh, phone service provider. And some home phones come with a spam button on them now. You can just hit the button and yeah. and, and block, you know, a call. Now, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the information comes from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, but it seems like, a, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but couldn't they do more to crack down on these robocalls? It seems like it should be the government's responsibility to pick up some of this. Now, you know, I've been on the... Uh, 
you know, the, uh, the, the that national list that's supposed to do not call list, but I still mm-hmm. get these calls. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, 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 do, I, I do too. I get, I get them all the time, and it's certainly frustrating. I know that they recently um, put in a federal law called the Trace Act um, that's designed to do more to uh, curb these robocalls. The way I read into it, um, it allows the FCC to go after scammers for the first time they break the law and extends harsher penalties in terms of fines against these robocallers. Um, so I think the government is taking some steps, but I'm definitely with you in being frustrated that, you know, someone who does a lot of these steps is still getting impacted by um, these robocalls. And I think that the uh, the phone providers could definitely be doing more too. Like these, these apps are great, but you would figure they could do more on, you know, identifying these numbers and doing more, you know, proactive stuff to, to block these type of callers. Because I'm sure they're leaving some sort of, you know, footprint. If you're seeing a, a phone number that's making, you know, thousands and thousands of calls, that would that would raise a, a red flag to me. You probably experience this too. I, I get calls from the same phone numbers all the time, you know, day after day mm-hmm. after day. It's the same. And then you block them, and then they switch to another phone number. And I found in yep. some cases they have like endless numbers. I can't, I can't possibly block them all because I don't, you know, most uh, phone systems don't have the capacity to block more than 50 calls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I share the same frustrations. I, I've gone through the exact thing that you mentioned, you know, over and over and block one. And then, you know, a couple of days later you get one from another call. So it's, it's definitely something that's endlessly frustrating. And finally, do you think it's a good idea for folks to kind of treat their telephone numbers like their social security numbers now? You know, you, you know, there's a lot of businesses, a lot of entities that, that want your number, you know, like the, mm-hmm. for better, you know, maybe web security or whatever it is. But once they get your number, who knows where that number is going to go? Yeah, I would dec- definitely recommend being cautious with who um, you give your phone number out to. Um, like you mentioned, you know, more and more than ever, if you sign up for something online, if you go into a business, they all want your phone call, your phone number to put it on a list. So I think it's something that you should be precautionary about it because the more you give it out, I think the more susceptible you're going to be to getting on more of these lists, which is going to lead to just, you know, more annoyance and more phone calls and more risks, you know, for potentially getting your identity stolen or falling in line with any of these, you know, popular robocall scams. I think this, <laughs> I think this problem is going to be with us for a while. So, <laughs> uh, un- unfortunately, I do too. But I hope, I hope these, uh, and I hope that you know we're getting closer to uh, it being less of a problem because it's certainly an annoyance and it's something that's impacting you know just about everyone across the country. Absolutely. Well, really appreciate the interview. Valuable information. I'm sure our listeners are going to be all ears. Okay. Appreciate it. Good talking with you, Ken. Matt Zajahowski of Third Digital Coast. Well, some say it's time for colleges to start teaching character. That's coming up next. He's reported for CNN, The Associated Press, ABC News, Fox News, and is in the Press Club Hall of Fame. This is the Ken Robinson Podcast with radio and television host Ken Robinson. It's not enough to prepare college students for careers. They should also be taught character and ethics. So says Josiah Bunting III. He's a celebrated military combat veteran, a retired major general who served as president of Briarcliff College, Hamden-Sydney College, 
and was appointed superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute. Bunting was responsible for overseeing preparations for and the enrollment of VMI's first female cadets. In 2015, Bunting was appointed chairman of the Friends of the National World War II Memorial. General Bunting is author of numerous books, including An Education for Our Time. General, feel that many college students are being shortchanged? Uh, most of them, when they go off to college, don't really find what they're looking for, uh, and in particular uh, are denied contact with teachers and professors. And I think uh, at a critical time in their lives, that's when they need uh, interested adults who have a real vocation to teach and really enjoy being with them. I guess so often we hear that uh, uh, students who enroll in college often end up dealing with grad, grad assistance. It's, the... it, it, it's a terrific problem, and it's fairly standard uh, in, in the very large research universities. And I'm sorry to say, uh, as a general rule, uh, those universities which have the highest reputation and the greatest visibility are frequently the most uh, blameworthy in this regard. Uh, the important professors, or the ones the public regards as important professors, as a rule do not teach undergraduate students and rarely teach freshmen. Uh, freshmen tend to be taught by uh, doctoral students, graduate students, uh, and most of their work is evaluated by graduate students also. That's usually because the professors are involved in publishing and, and doing research, which is usually what the college demands of them to do. Correct. Uh, research and publishing and also uh, supervising the work of other uh, graduate students, of other doctoral candidates. My argument is very simple, that uh, the young people who are going to colleges, especially uh, bright, bright young people going to uh, prestigious schools that they've tried very hard to get into and have made sacrifices to attend, these kids are going to become lawyers, uh, doctors, architects, merchants, ministers, and so on. Most of them aren't going to become professors. They should there, therefore, it seems to me, uh, claim the very best that those academic departments have to offer. Uh, the best professors, the most widely published, uh, those who are spending their time on research, these are the ones who should be teaching these young people. And uh, it, it normally does not work like that. And I think that's a, it's a shame, and I think it's also uh, dishonest on the part of the universities. Now, I've always heard that if you want a really good top-flight education, don't go to a school with a big-name sports program, mm -hmm. because that's where a lot of the money goes. Yep, that, that's exactly right. Uh, there, are, there are some exceptions to that, um, but uh, generally speaking, you're right. Uh, if it's a big, flashy athletic program, uh, that, that's going to absorb a great deal of money. Now, what about the problem of, of getting hands-on experience for the students? So often, students are dealing with professors when they deal with professors. They're, de they're dealing with professors who have never worked in the field they're professing. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the smartest things they can do, all students, is to visit these schools uh, that they are applying to and, and, you know, they're like all Americans. They, they have a nose not only for quality but for reputation. Uh, they tend, just like most Americans do, to want uh, what they perceive to be the most prestigious. Americans all want a certain kind of automobile or a certain kind of vacation trip or a certain kind of university. But they fail to uh, really look carefully at what it is they are buying into. What they ought to do, in my opinion 
go to the university when they're high school seniors, spend two or three days there, and spend that time with a graduate of the high school or somebody that they know. And not on the weekend, but in the middle of the week. Arrive on a Monday night and hang around for two or three days in February. Go to classes, look at the library, take a close look at the dormitory, live in the dormitory if possible, visit the bookstore, get a sense of what the place is really like, not when it's trying to look good, but the way it really is. Now, in your book, An Education for Our Time, you outline some controversial ideas as to how uh, we can improve uh, college education. Uh, among those, eliminating standardized testing for admission? Yes. I, I, am, a, I am an opponent of standardized testing. Uh, I should point out that this ideal college, which I have created uh, in my imagination, uh, is a small college. It's strictly undergraduates. It has 1,500 students. Uh, it makes its decisions on whom to admit with a view towards what its mission is. And I have given this college the mission of preparing virtuous and effective leaders for our society, for our, for our culture. So they have, in a way, a kind of a specific mission. We're looking for young people who, even at the age of 15 or 16 or 17, have given early signals that they have what it takes to be an effective human being as a leader. I don't mean necessarily uh, uh, academic smarts or, or a desire to shout at people or a desire to be a boss, but I am looking for a certain independence of temperament, uh, self-reliance, uh, acts of moral and physical courage. And obviously, along with these qualities of character, we want kids who are bright, who have done well in their academic uh, courses. This is certainly not an anti-intellectual place. But I don't think the standardized tests uh, do us much good when we try to predict what these young people will be like when they become adults. One of the arguments you hear about SATs all the time is that they do correlate fairly well with student grades in the freshman year, especially in, in courses that involve a lot of reading or a, a lot of mathematics. Uh, to some extent, that's true. But I am interested in what these people are going to be like, not when they're 19 or 20, but what they're going to be like when they're 40 or 50. If you look uh, at the people that you and I uh, admire, that most Americans admire, uh, that most of them are, are, are now dead, but leaders of the country uh, in all fields, especially government and politics, most of these people uh, were not uh, academic whizzes when they were in school. They grew into their wisdom. And locating that capacity to grow into wisdom, that, it seems to me, is what we should be about uh, with these young people that will come to this ideal college. And that's why, uh, in your ideal college, you would abolish grades. Yes, uh, I would abolish grades. Again, uh, I don't mean to sound... Uh, I don't mean to sound like a madman. Uh, there would be uh, a careful means of evaluating the students' work. Uh, the students would work very closely with their young professors, who are called mentors, and they would certainly know how well they are doing, uh, how how well they are writing, how well they are calculating. But I would not have any grades at all in the college except simply proficient or not proficient. Those would be the only grades I would use. So character would be the number one thing, and I, I can Im imagine what a lot of uh, 
college administrators would say. They'd say, well, it's not our place to teach morals and characters. Maybe that's the that's the uh, charge of the church or, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other uh, kinds of uh, organizations. Well, I completely disagree with that. Uh, it seems to me the great problems in our country now, and again, we're talking about uh, people who are leading uh, in politics and government and business. The great problems, uh, te- uh, in, in my view, uh, are not academic ones, and they are not even intellectual ones. They are problems having to do with human character and with virtue. Is there some way that, uh, with young people, that through a collaborative uh, effort, families, uh, churches, high schools, colleges, we can inculcate uh, certain habits of behavior, those that we call character and virtue, uh, can we do this? Uh, there are a few schools that try. Uh, we don't have any fixed evidence, but we certainly, it seems to me, ought to try. And one thing we should not do uh, is admit an 18 or a 17 or an 18-year-old boy or girl to our university of 50,000 undergraduates and leave them alone. Because if we do that, all they will do is perpetuate the habits they learned in high school and at best uh, try to get an academic degree in some professional field, and that's it. Well, that's it. it's so sad that when uh, a lot of these grads apply for a job after leaving college, a company will ask for their grade point average, but really won't ask any questions about their character or, yeah. <laughs> or, or how virtuous they are or that's how right. honest they are. That's right. Uh, character, of course, is a, is a gigantic uh, topic, and we, we fling it around like a dish rag. I mean very specifically when I talk about character. Uh, I mean resolution. I mean determination. Uh, the willingness to do what we think is right and stick with it until we have finished doing it. That's, that's my idea of character. Uh, it is not something that can be taught, I don't think, although you can certainly study examples of people who have had character. But paradoxically, I think it is something that can be learned And the best way to learn it uh, is to live a life uh, in which you are around adults who themselves are good and virtuous people. Uh, You cannot overestimate the value of a powerful human example uh, when that example is visible and close to a young person. Uh, We've all had the experience uh, in high school or college. uh, There was some great professor, some great coach, a great chaplain, somebody We really admired that person. And when we stop to ask why we admired it, it's almost always because of their qualities of integrity, uh, their determination to stick with something because it's right, and uh, and their kindliness, their willingness to reach down and help us. And it seems to me those are the kind of people that uh, universities should be hiring to be teachers. Uh, In this ideal college uh, that I've written about, there is a long chapter about educating teachers. And one of the requirements is that all of the teachers at this college serve a minimum of three years, and and typically more than that, in some other profession altogether with people who are not academics. I think that's very important. Well, we want to thank you for uh, taking time to talk with us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Josiah Bunting III, author of numerous books, including... An Education for Our Time. Also, Small Units in Control of Civil Disorder and Ulysses S. Grant, plus four novels. 
served as a major general in the Marines and is a combat veteran. Josiah Bunting III served as president of Briarcliff College, Hamden Sydney College, and was appointed superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute. By the way, his half-brother is Dick Ebersol, the creator and former executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Coming up, why we do what we do in church. Are you tired of slow, clunky internet browsers? Say goodbye to frustration and hello to a faster, safer online experience with Mozilla Firefox. With Firefox, you'll enjoy lightning-fast browsing speeds, ensuring that your favorite websites load in the blink of an eye. But it doesn't stop there. Firefox prioritizes your privacy and security, keeping your personal information safe from prying eyes. Plus, with a wide range of features and add-ons, you can customize your browser to fit your needs and style. Join the millions of satisfied users who trust Firefox for their online adventures. Download Mozilla Firefox today and experience the web like never before. Mozilla Firefox, your fast, secure, and personalized gateway to the digital world. Joining us now is Charles Panati, author of the book, The Sacred Origins of Profound Things. Charles is a former college professor, industrial physicist, and science editor at Newsweek magazine. After graduating from Villanova University with a BS in physics, he obtained a master's degree in radiation health physics from Columbia University and worked in cancer research at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Charles is a man of science and medicine, but also an expert on things religious. Glad to have you here. You know, a lot of us uh, take part in rituals uh, in church, and and a lot of times we have no idea what those rituals are all about. Is is that the case for a lot of us? Something (laughs) as simple as the sign of the cross, touching the forehead, the shoulders. It's where did it start? It started in the second century when Christians were being persecuted. First, they touched their forehead Mm -hmm. just as a signal, I'm Christian, you're Christian. Then when a century later, when they started talking about the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they would hold the first three fingers together when they blessed themselves to symbolize the Trinity. And then when they started talking about, is Christ human or divine or both, Mm -hmm. they tucked the last two fingers back against the palm, packing as much symbolism into the gesture as possible. Mm -hmm. So, so, I try to trade, you know, really look into the most fundamental things. How did you come to write a book like this? Well, I had done a book previously called Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, zippers, buttons, hot dogs, potato <laughs> chips, secular things. Uh-huh. And that was very popular. But I realized I had never touched on sacred things. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Roman Catholic, Catholic grammar school, high school, Villanova University, taught by Augustinian priest. I almost became a priest myself, and I realized I didn't know the origin of something like papal infallibility. How did the Pope? How did that happen? Well, most people don't know, and it's shocking. <laughs> it did not. He did not become infallible until the summer of 1870. It was Pius the Ninth. Well, that's relatively recently. The, yes, most people think all the way back to Peter. Yeah. All popes were infallible, and the reason it happened is not spiritual. It was purely political. In 1870, Italy, the states of Italy, had just come together to form the country of Italy, mm-hmm. and the government was taking away papal land. And the Pope was helpless to do anything about losing his temporal power, so he said, I'll expand my spiritual power and make myself 
infallible. Wow. And he pushed the dogma through, much to the church's embarrassment to this day. It's only been used two times, <laughs> and they'd rather like not talk about it at this point. Amazing how things happen. Well, you mentioned some of the symbolism. The cross, for example. Some people say that, well, if Christ had been killed by a gun, we'd be worshiping guns. That's very interesting. Yeah, we already do, I think, with some people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a big gun culture. What most people don't know about the cross is that for the first 600 years, an image of Christ did not appear on the two planks. It mm. was just bare boards. People thought it was somewhat sacrilegious to crucify him again. He had already gone through this once. Don't do it in imagery. Around the 600s, they started to put images of Christ on the cross. No blood, mm. and he was fully clothed at first. Mm. However, over the centuries, he wore less and less clothes so they could show his suffering, show his wasting away. Mm-hmm. Around the 10th century, they started to really make the crosses gory. Blood on the hands, blood on the feet, blood gushing down from the side. And interestingly enough, that is the first time that the phenomenon of stigmata appears in history. Stigmata being the man, the uh, appearance of the wounds of Christ in someone like a pious monk who was meditating. St. Francis was the first in the 1100s. And he was meditating on a very, very gory, bloody cross at the time. Wow. So the power of suggestion comes in there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Now, when we think of Christianity, we think about the uh, the sacrifices of Christ. Are sacrifices uh, common to most religions? We think of the, the communion, where we, you know, use the blood and the, the flesh. You know. yes. uh, we think of the, New, the Old Testament, where sacrifices were given, goats and sheep. Are, are sacrifices a, a common thread through most They're of the world's religions? through all religions, and the, in Christianity, the Eucharist really is a cannibalistic rite. Martin Luther acknowledged this. All of the Christian popes acknowledge this. They really say, when Christ said, this is my body, he meant flesh. And mm-hmm. when he said, this is my blood, he meant blood. But that's not bizarre, because if you look way back and cross-culturally, ancient peoples actually ate a little piece of a dead relative or a dead hero, just nibbled off. I mean, not a lot, just nibbled <laughs> off a little bit. But the idea was to take into your body the heroism of a hero or, you know, the remembrance of a dear grandmother. In some religions and some cultures, on your deathbed, you even requested who was going to nibble on you when my, you died. My, my. That's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you can see you can see the symbolism behind it. Yeah. It's like, yes, we're losing you, but we're going to, you know, ingest you, swallow you, make a bit of your flesh, my flesh, my body. And that is implicit in the, the, in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Did you know, I, di- I mean, I didn't know this, mm-hmm. that there are serious, they have a whole chapter on relics. And I should mention that. This is cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. The relics of the tooth of the Buddha in the, in the tooth shrine in Sri Lanka, um, relics from all around the world. But I did not know, being a Roman Catholic, that a cathedral in Germany claims to have five planks from the original manger. Wow. Yes, you raised your <laughs> eyebrows. I mean, everybody does when you say that. So does the church. Another cathedral, also in Germany, claims to have the baby Jesus' original diaper. That is the swaddling <laughs> cloth. Now, obviously, I mean, these can't really be genuine. Uh-huh. The church's attitude in something like this is don't knock it. If it engenders faith in people, if people have miraculous cures and healings going to these shrines, and they do, mm-hmm. then let well enough be. <laughs> We're talking to Charles Panati, who's author of the book Sacred Origins of Profound Things, the stories behind the rites and rituals of the world's religions. The Bible says you shouldn't wear uh, clothes made of two different kinds of cloth. Where in the world did that come from? <laughs> well, I go, in, that's a lo- I go into a long discussion there about the things in the Bible. If you took the Bible literally, if mm-hmm. you took every word and every sentence, I mean, you couldn't get through 
life. life. You yeah. just couldn't get through life. I mean, there's a whole section in Leviticus mm-hmm. where it says, uh, if two men sleep together, you know, stone them. But it says in the lines directly above beneath, if a man cheats on his wife, stone him and the woman. Mm-hmm. If a man sleeps with his mother-in-law, I mean, stone them bo- uh, to death. I mean, and mm-hmm. it's a whole list of harsh punishments. That's what, what we really do is we pick mm-hmm. and choose. I mean, yeah. Now, Islam and, and other religions... Do they have similar punitive uh, measures against certain sexual proclivities? Very is much it, so. And that's so, a common thread then. It's a common thread. Let me ask you something. Are you familiar with the 12 days of Christmas? Uh, yeah. That rhyme? That rhymes. I don't think anybody knows <laughs> this. It came as a complete shock to me. You know, on the 12 days of Christmas, mm-hmm. it was devised around the time of Henry VIII when Henry broke with the Roman Catholic Church, started the Church of England, and Christians were being persecuted. They needed some little rhyme, some mnemonic to learn where they could secretly couch in the major tenets of their faith. Mm-hmm. And each thing in that poem, each image, represents something major in Christianity. For example, a partridge in a pear tree, the fra- refrain you keep coming back to, mm-hmm. that's Jesus Christ. But two turtle doves, the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Three French hens, faith, hope, and charity. Four birds are calling, the four gospels. Five golden rings, the five books of Moses. Six geese laying the six days of creation. So you could teach your children <laughs> this rhyme, and they could innocently sing it and learn the major tenets of the faith and not be persecuted. I've often heard it said that the, the, the world's three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all really related. They, they all really came from the same place or uh, originated from the same people. Very, very much so. I mean, there's a direct line. The Jews were the first, really, to posit the idea of a monotheistic, single God. All the world before them mm-hmm. worshipped gods and goddesses and multiplicities, and the Jews said, no, there's only one. And, of course, theirs was the, the Hebrew Scripture. Christianity came along and then said, called the Hebrew Scripture the Old Testament and said it was updated with the New Testament, with the birth of Christ. But uh, Mohammed came along 600 years later and had further revelation, which was further. And the Quran is a, also a compilation of things found in the Old Testament, things found in the New Testament, and additions. All, I also should mention those three major monotheistic faiths all have different ideas as to what the first forbidden fruit was in the Garden ah. of Eden. Judaism says it was a pomegranate. Okay. Because pomegranates are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Christianity f- at first had nothing to say about it until Christian artists started to paint the scene and then needed to represent a fruit. Apples were the favorite fruit at that time, so they said it was an apple. Interestingly, when in Muhammad's time in the 600s, uh, the favorite export there in that part of the world was bananas. So <laughs> the Muslims say it's bananas. Wow. <laughs> Well, you know, one the Bible doesn't say <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, one one thing I, I get from from reading the book is that religion goes through an evolution. I know some uh, people in the religious world don't like the thought of evolution, but religion seems to go through an evolution as well, uh, as far as ritual and uh, relics and, and the whole thing. Absolutely, and it become. I think today. Most people, most intelligent people would say it's ridiculous to say that my faith is the one true only faith and the rest of you poor, unfortunate, (laughs) unenlightened people, you know, who just haven't seen the way yet. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous because when you look at parts of the world like India and China 
where they have no idea about Jesus Christ or the, the Jewish faith, and they have 5,000 years of traditions in, you know, in other religions. Mm-hmm. I think you have to acknowledge that perhaps God manifests himself in different cultures over different times in different ways. Mm-hmm. Certainly not all of those. I grew up as a Roman Catholic thinking that only we, Roman Catholics, oh, thank God I was you know, born to a Roman Catholic parent, were going to be saved. Uh-huh. And the re- rest of the poor, ignorant people were you know, going somewhere else to hell, most likely. <laughs> well, speaking of hell, well, what about the devil? Is that uh, a common thread? And, and how did that whole concept originate? Yes, I have a whole chapter on the devil. It's interesting in that the, the Jews gave the Christians God, the concept of a monotheistic God. The mm-hmm. Christians turned around and gave the Jews the devil. The, the devil is really a revelation of the New Testament. The, Jew, the Jews near the time of the New Testament started to talk about a dualism between good and evil. During the Babylonian captivity, they came under the influence of Zoroastrianism, which had a very strong dualism. It saw everything as sort of black, white, good, evil. Mm-hmm. And it was that dualism that strongly influenced the Jews and greatly influenced the Christians. And what it said is that everything that good happens is God's work. Everything that is evil has to be attributed to some personification, and this was the fallen angel, uh, Satan. Interestingly, in Christianity, the sin for which the angels were punished and fell from heaven originally for 500 years, it was not regarded as pride, which we say today. The angels were prideful and fell. It was the sin of the angels having sex with human females. It was this copulation, uh, which again is not strange because – Virgin births, the copulation of a deity in the sky with a human female was common throughout the past. As a matter of fact, all the Greek gods copulated with earthly women to produce Mm. demigods. The Caesars, the the Roman Caesars, all claimed to have divine fathers. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all all great men assumed they had mortal mothers who had been inseminated by these gods. Wow. Heaven. So that's not a new, that wasn't a new concept to... No. Uh, the, vir- the whole concept of being of a mortal woman, virgin woman being inseminated by a god was not. The twist that Christianity gave, all of these other cu- couplings in the classical world were heavily sexual. They sometimes went on for two or three days. Wow. In Christianity, <laughs> the difference was there was never any physical, physical contact. Mm-hmm. God breathed Jesus Christ into the womb of Mary. Now, something else I didn't know. You know the virgin birth, mm-hmm. which assumes that Mary never had sex. The baby, as I said, was breathed into the womb. The Catholic Church actually teaches that she remained a virgin during the birthing process. Mm-hmm. She never experienced labor pains. There was no breaking of water, no breaking of the hymen, and no vaginal exit of the baby Jesus. Wow. Now, how did he get out? <laughs> the Church says only God knows. We, we don't really know. But that's part of the theology of Roman Catholicism, seldom taught. Mm-hmm. And I try to tell you those things in the book, the stuff Uh you don't know. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. We want to thank you for joining us today. Charles Panati, author of the book, Sacred Origins of Profound Things. He has also written 13 other books, including The Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, Sexy Origins and Intimate Things, Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Mania, and Words to Live By. Well, I hope you found this podcast interesting and informative. Our music is by H Beats. That's H Beats with a Z. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thanks so much for listening. 
Nationwide is on your side. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Get full details at krobcollection.com.